worship team again for being here and the folks behind the cameras and the sound booth and and uh, everybody that made this happen. Uh, we have been just, I guess the first thing I want to do is thank you guys. We have been overwhelmed with the positive response we had from last week. We had so many of our own people watching and folks from all over uh, watching friends, I guess, of friends, and I had uh, the incomparable Wanda Cook from Oklahoma call me, and I know her sister Belinda down in Tampa was watching, and people, a lot of different places that I've heard from, and I have so many encouraging, positive comments, and thank you for not not just worshiping with us, and we li- we really are, we're worshiping together we're just in a lot of different places, but as we talked about last week, the Holy Spirit is omnipresent. Our God is everywhere. So he's with you right there in your living room or your den. I've got a friend that's probably in his pickup. He has to leave his house and find a hill nearby so he can make phone calls and do things like get on the internet. And he's probably sitting in his pickup trying to watch us. So thank you. And before I forget, just a reminder to uh, let you know, next Sunday, April 5th, we as the body of Christ will be celebrating Palm Sunday. We'll also be celebrating it. This is the same way. This is not ideal. It's not what we want to do, but it's what we're doing for now. It's where we are. And so next week, again, we'll be worshiping together. We'll be celebrating together Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry of Christ into Jerusalem, the beginning of Passion Week leading up to the crucifixion. His burial, death, burial, and resurrection, the whole message of the gospel. Next Sunday, we'll be celebrating the same way, 1045, online worship service together from both campuses. So again, thank you. Take your Bibles, your devices, wherever you are, wherever you're comfortable, in your, your living room, as Peter said, in your den, in your pickup truck, wherever you happen to be, and turn to Isaiah chapter 40. And let's kind of pick up on what we were talking about last week. So we've been for a number of weeks, we're looking at this series about who's your daddy, who is our God. And and I really think when Peter was sharing some of that earlier, I was literally myself going back through thinking about and looking at some principles from the book of Job this week and how here's a man who even his own friends, as Peter was sharing, came to him and said, man, it must be sin in your life. What's wrong with you? Why is God doing this to you? And I think in a very applicable, real way, we could say, why is this coronavirus just wreaking havoc throughout the world? In our personal lives, we're all touched by it in many different ways. I've spent almost the entirety of my week this week dealing with issues around the coronavirus. As we said last week, you're hurting physically, you're hurting emotionally, Clearly, many people are hurting financially, and I have no friends that have lost their jobs. I know friends that are thinking about having to lay off people and, and cut salaries, and, and it's difficult. It's hard. We live in a world that's cursed by sin. And as the Bible says, I was literally sharing this with a friend this week, that it rains on the just and the unjust. And the virus doesn't say, well, they're Christians, I won't touch them. It just is. We get sick. We hurt. But the beauty of understanding 
who we are as believers is that we have someone to go to. That our daddy is the omnipotent God who is in control. When he says to us, I am the Lord and there is no other, that's exactly what he means. So last week we were talking about in Isaiah 40, again, if you'll turn there if you haven't already. We talked about in Isaiah 40 that God makes promises to his children. And he makes this great promise to us that I will save you. I will carry you through. I will forgive your sins. Who we are in Christ, we are redeemed. We're not perfect. We're forgiven. We understand forgiveness. Therefore, we understand love. We understand grace. We understand mercy. We have a personal relationship with God. He's not just the deity. He is our father. Again, the series, who's your daddy? So what we're going to look at today, starting in verse 12 of Isaiah 40, is God's proclamation to his children. We talked about last week his promise to us, I will save you, I will carry you through to the end. In these verses, starting in verse uh, 12 and carrying through Isaiah 40, he's going to make a proclamation to his children that I can do what I told you I would do. So I want to set the picture. I want you to look at verse 18 with me first. Verse 18. Isaiah 40, verse 18. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare to him? Now drop down to verse 25. To whom then will you liken me? Or to whom shall I be equal, says the Holy One. And that's the theme of the rest of the section of Isaiah 40. Is that our God is incomparable. There's nothing that compares to him. We may think we've got it all together. We may think we're completely in control. And then something like a coronavirus just literally shuts the world down. And we desperately need God to intervene. And we pray. I promise you in many ways it's enhanced your prayer life. I know it has mine. We talked about last week. The very last thing we talked about was please pray for your leaders in your church. Pray for the leaders of your nation. Pray for your local leaders as we're commanded to do in Scripture. We desperately need to humble ourselves before God and then repent where necessary, seek his face. So we think we've got everything under control. There's nothing I can't handle. There's nothing we can't handle. And then you encounter something that you can't handle, we can't handle. We don't even know what it is. We talked so much this week in the media about that we're at war with an invisible enemy. That's a hard kind to fight. But our God, who is also invisible, is greater than he who's in the world. Visible or invisible, our God is incomparable. We think we can handle anything. I promise you, as we speak to you, other than your children, and you can explain it to them later, there was a man back in the 60s, 70s, named Muhammad Ali. Muhammad Ali was probably the greatest boxer that's ever lived. The heavyweight champion of the world. And when he came on the scene, he was Cassius Clay, changed his name to Muhammad Ali, and many of you know the story. Muhammad Ali did not lack for confidence. Totally brash, supremely confident, 
He was getting ready to fight Sonny Liston for the heavyweight championship of the world. There was no doubt in his mind that he was going to win. Muhammad Ali's self-moniker, what he called himself was the greatest. He, I am the greatest. Muhammad Ali got on an airplane once, a commercial airliner. And he was sitting there and the flight attendant came to him and said, please, Mr. Ali, would you fashion your seatbelt? And again, supremely confident, Muhammad Ali, he said, Superman don't need a seatbelt. And the flight attendant turned to him and, and leaned down to him and said, yeah, Superman don't need an airplane either. Supremely confident. We think we can handle anything. What we need to do is crawl up in the arms of our dad, realize who he is, and as the theme of Scripture says to us, trust him. Your God is there. He's trustworthy. So let's look, starting in verse 12 of Isaiah 40, at the incomparable power of our dad, who our God is. Verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Who's measured heaven with a span and calculated the dust of the earth in a measure? He's weighed the mountains and the scales and the hills in a balance. Who has directed the spirit of the Lord or as his counselor has taught him? With whom did he take counsel and who instructed him? Who taught him in the path of justice? Who taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are a drop in the bucket. They are counted as the small dust in the scales. Look, he lifts up the aisles in a very, as a very little thing. And Lebanon is not sufficient to burn, nor its beasts sufficient for a burnt offering. All nations before him are as nothing, and they are counted by him less than nothing and worthless. We'll get into that. He's not saying people are worthless. He's saying, I am sovereign over everything that's ever been created. There is nothing, nobody, no nation, no power, and we're literally discovering this now as, as a world that is comparable to our God. There's no being, no entity. There is, I am completely sovereign over all creation. Look at verse 13. I'm also completely sovereign over what you think you know, wisdom and understanding. Look at verse 13 again. Who's directed the spirit of the Lord as his counselor who, or his counselor has taught him? Who's taught God? With whom did God take counsel and who instructed God? Who taught God in the path of justice? Who taught God knowledge? Who showed God the way of understanding? And the point is, nobody did. Because he is truth. He is wisdom. He is knowledge. And so our God, our dad, is incomparable as the creator over everything. Our God, our dad, is incomparable as the one of all truth, wisdom, knowledge, and understanding. And all nations on the planet, both Jew, Gentiles, as laid out in Scripture, all are under his sovereign rule. There are none that exist that he does not allow to exist. And this is the theme that runs throughout the Word of God. For example, I'm just going to give you some examples you could turn to them later and think about it yourself. Solomon, talking about building the temple, the great edifice that he built, that God had gave David all the instructions and then Solomon built. Solomon said this, Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, God. How much less this house that I have built? End quote. Solomon's message was 
and this was an amazing edifice, took 20 years to build, just billions of dollars in value. And then Solomon says, but this building, this great temple, it cannot contain you, God. You're much larger than this. You created the raw materials that make it possible. They gave us the knowledge to do it, but it's nothing compared with you. Daniel answered and said this in his prophecy. Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom and might are his. He changes the times and the seasons. He removes kings and he raises up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and secret things. End quote. And Daniel's point becoming the second most powerful man in the world because of the wisdom, the gift of wisdom and of interpreting dreams that God had given to him under pagan king after pagan king after pagan king. Daniel, this Jewish young man for 70 years from age 15 to age 85 as he grew, every new pagan king, Babylon, Medo, Persia, on and on, all of those kings ended up turning to Daniel saying, we need the knowledge that your God has given to you and you train our wise men so they know what's going on. They're thinking about watching even this week as a brilliant person after brilliant person after brilliant person trying to deal with this coronavirus. And the very fact they have the capacity to try to come up with therapies and vaccines and treatments and ways of handling it, it's a gift from God. Another proof that we are created far above everything else intellectually. We have the capacity to do so because God created us in his image. David, when talking about God, said this, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. His greatness is unsearchable. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Paul said this, Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and in how inscrutable his ways. Throughout scripture, just pick a time in history. Abraham, then on and on. Time after time after time. The theme of scripture is how great is our God and greatly to be praised. The chief end of man is to glorify God or to make him relevant, to understand him as much as we can with our finite minds. I was reading a, uh, an article by a great pastor this week. and He said this, named Paul David Tripp, said this, we don't have a contentment problem, we have an awe problem. Once awe of God is lost, the loss of heart to obey if, we, if all of, of God does not grip your heart, the anxieties of this life will likely influence how you live, end quote. We don't have a contentment problem. We have an awe problem. In other words, when the Bible talks about the fear of the Lord, that's what it means, is to be in awe of how great God is. I need to fear him 
his wrath if I reject him. But for those of us that are his children, those of us who are born again, Christians, children of God, he is our daddy. And to be in awe of him is I rest in him, despite the turmoil around me. I know that he's in charge. I know he loves me. I know he's going to get me through. Does that mean I'm not going to get COVID-19? No, I might get it. Do I want to have it? Of course not. But I might get it. But my dad knows that. Does it mean that I'm stupid about how I run my life? Of course not. But it means I'm ultimately I trust him. I love him because I know he loves me. He's going to take care of me. Incomparable. Incomparable in power. But also incomparable in his nature. Look at verse 18. His nature. To whom then will you liken God? What likeness will you compare to him? The workman molds an image. The goldsmith overspreads it with gold. And the silversmith casts silver chains. Whoever is too impoverished for such a contribution chooses a tree that will not rot. He seeks for himself a skillful workman to prepare a carved image that will not totter. Have you not known? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth. And its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out like stretches out the heavens like a curtain. He spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. He brings the princes to nothing. He makes the judges of the earth useless. Scarcely shall they be planted. Scarcely shall they be sown. Scarcely shall their stock take root in the earth. When he, God, will also blow on them and they will wither. And the whirlwind will take them away like the stubble. To whom then will you liken me, or to whom shall I be equal? Lift up your eyes on high. See who has created these things, who brings out their host by number. He calls, them, he calls them all by name, by the greatness of his might and the strength of his power. Not one is missing. There's no one like our God. Not, as he, not just that he is omnipotent, and that's what we're seeing over and over an incomparable power, but just the nature of who he is. Verses 18 through 20, we've dealt with this in previous sermons, and we're not going to go back in, in great detail. But verses 18 and 20 through 20 are talking about the idols that men make, the gods that we make, they just don't compare to God. Because by nature, they're just a tree, or they're silver, or they're gold. They're something that our dad made, so that man has taken and made a god out of. Literally, the materials to make the idols that men then worship are given to man by God. Creation itself was a gift to man. God told Adam, this is for you to rule, to use, to steward. The things that man takes to worship, whether it's Ourselves, in this case, he's using literal examples of physical idols. Find a good tree and make you an idol out of it. God gave you the tree so that you could make the idol. The nature of your God is incomparable. Flip over for just a moment to chapter 46 in Isaiah. Look at verse 5. 46, 5. 
46.5, Isaiah says this. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, and to all the remnant of the house of Israel. In other words, all 12 tribes. You've been upheld by me from birth. You've been carried from the womb. I've always been there for you. Even to your old age, I am he. And even to gray hairs, I will carry you. I've made and I will bear. I will carry. I will deliver you. There, you can go back to 40 now. There's no comparison. Whatever idol you choose to make, make it. But it will not carry you. It has not known you forever. It has not known you even prior to your birth. I know you. Look at verse 21 back in Isaiah 40. Creation itself bows down to God. He asks four rhetorical questions here. Look at verse 21. Have you not known? Have you not heard? Has it been not told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? Four rhetorical questions, and the answer to them is, have you not heard? Have you not known? Have you not, has it not been told you from the beginning? And the answer is, you know. You know I am the creator. You know that I rule over it. But look down at verse 23, not just creation. He brings the princes to nothing. He makes the judges of the earth useless. I am God, not just over creation, but over every kingdom that man might create, that he's going to rule as a prince or he's going to judge over as a human judge. Ultimately, they're all responsible. They only have their authority because I give it to them. That's what Jesus told Pilate. They only have that authority because I, God, allow them to have it. But ultimately, I will be their judge. All of them, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord through the glory of God the Father. They will bow to me. Look at verse 22, one of my favorite verses in the Bible. In the middle of all of this, he says, have you not known, have you not heard, have you not been told from the beginning, have you understood from the foundations of the earth? Creation tells you I am God. The one it tells you that there is a God, and then I've proven to you that I am that God. Now look at verse 22. It is he, God, who sits above the circle of the earth. Sits above the circle of the earth. People did not think the earth was round. They thought it was flat. God's just a reminder. I know what it is because I made it. I sit above it. I look down on it and see the grasshoppers because I'm God. You need to be in awe of who your dad is. But then look down at verse 26, just a special reminder. Lift up your eyes on high. And see who has created these things, who brings out their host by number. He calls them all by name, by the greatness of his power, might, strength of his power, might. Not one is missing. There's a special moment here. Here's what God is doing. He's saying, I'm the omnipotent creator of the universe. You need to be in awe of me, but I'm also your dad. When he says in verse 26, Look at the host. He's talking about stars. He says, I created them. I numbered them. I know them by name. Not one of them is missing. I know each individual star by name. We talked about this earlier. Jesus and trying to remind the same thing God is doing here in Isaiah 40 is that I am the great omnipotent God of the universe. I want to be your daddy. 
and I'm going to take personal care of you. Every hair on your head is numbered by me. I know you. I've known you before you were ever in the womb. You're special to me. Just like I know these stars and Jesus talked about sparrows and he said, how much more of value are you to your dad? Your God loves you. Your dad is taking care of you. And so what he's saying to you here is that not only do I promise you that I'm going to save you, but I also want you to understand I've got the power to do what I said I would do. I can save. I've proven over and over historically from the Garden of Eden forward, the Exodus, remember that, says to Jacob and Israel. Remember how I carried you. Remember the parting of the Red Sea. Remember the miracles that I performed by you before Pharaoh and then in the wilderness and then on and on. Remember the story of David and Goliath. How in the world was David able to defeat that nine-foot giant? I've always been there for you. I've carried you. My promise to you is I will save you. My proclamation to you is I've got the power to do it. I will do what I promised you I would do. And then finally today, starting in verse 27, I want you to notice the privilege we have as his children. We're not invincible, even though we think we are. But our God is. We're not infinite. We're finite. But our dad is infinite. Self-existent, outside time, no end, no beginning, just is. He's the great I am. So the privilege he has for us, number one, is eternal strength. Look at verse 27. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord, and my just claim is passed over by my God. Have you not known? Have you not heard? There it is again, rhetorical questions. The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, he neither faints nor he is weary. His understanding is unsearchable. So he's saying, I talked about this last week as he talks to the the, uh, tribes of Judah that are in the Babylonian captivity, looking forward to that. But they're there saying, where's God? You think anybody's saying that right now with this coronavirus? Where's God? He's right in the middle of it with us. But he's working good. He's always, it's what he promised to do. It's what he's always doing. They were saying God's forgotten us. And I guarantee you, some of us have struggled with that over the last 20-something days. This thing just, boom, exploded on us. And we're struggling with it. But God says, I know. Trust me. If you need to repent, you repent. If you need to just trust, just trust. I am powerful enough. I promise you, you are my children. This is your incredible privilege. Look at verse 28 one more time. Have you not known, have you not heard the everlasting God, the eternal self-existent, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth? He doesn't faint. He doesn't get weary. His understanding is unsearchable. Verse 29, he gives power to the weak and to those who have no might. He increases strength. God is infinite. We're finite. Have you not known? Have you not heard? 
who's your God. Now look at verse 28, how he describes himself. He's everlasting, eternal, self-existent. That, that term in Hebrew is Elohim Olam, which means he's eternal, self-existent one. Also in verse 28, you see God called, he's the everlasting God, the Lord. The Lord, that, that phrase, the Lord there is the Hebrew one for Jehovah. Again, meaning self-existent one, the one who keeps his word, the one who can be trusted. I'm just going to run off for you a few names of God that are related to Jehovah in the Old Testament just to remind you who your dad is. He's Jehovah Rahi, the Lord is my shepherd. He's Jehovah Braith, Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will, will provide. Jehovah Shalom, he is my peace. Jehovah Rapha, the Lord is my healer. Jehovah does. Uh, the Lord is my righteousness. Jehovah Shema, the Lord is there. Jehovah Nisi, the Lord our banner. Jehovah M. Kadesh, the Lord is my sanctifier. Jehovah El Ayalon, the Lord most high. Shepherd, provider, peace, healer, righteousness. He is there. He is my banner. He is my sanctifier. He is the God most high. And notice, he neither faints. He never gets tired. Hebrews chapter 1 says, God upholds all things, all things by the word of his power. Verse 28 again, he neither does he get weary. In Psalm 121, the Bible says this, God will not allow your foot to be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. He who keeps Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper The Lord is your shade at your right hand. And then finally in verse 28, it says, his understanding is unsearchable. And that literally means it's beyond comprehension. It's kind of an oxymoron from our perspective is that God is, wants to know us on a personal level, but yet we can't comprehend him. That's the beauty of it. Because we are finite we ha- and we have a sin problem, we'll never be able to understand the holiness and, and the infinity of our God on this planet. But we can know him. He is our father through Jesus Christ. So eternally, he gives us the strength. I'm going to carry you through to eternity. He's my sanctifier, Jehovah sanctifier, carrying me right now until one day he'll be my glorifier and take me home because he was my justifier when I was saved. My Jehovah, he will heal us, our Rapha. He is God. And so the last point, he's also our strength. Look at verse 29. He gives power to the weak. To those who have no might, he increases strength. Even the youths shall faint and be weary. The young men shall utterly fall. But those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They'll mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not weary, not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Here's what he's saying. Even the strongest among you, the young men, who think they are invincible, I found out in the last few days I'm not young anymore. I used to go out and work in my yard all day. It wouldn't bother me. I worked in my yard Thursday and I worked in my yard yesterday and I can barely move today. I am so sore from pulling weeds and blowing leaves. We age. The young think 
I'm not ever going to get tired. I'm not ever going to fail like Muhammad Ali. I'm the greatest. I'm young. I'm invincible. And then something suddenly comes along you can't do anything about. So here's what God is saying in verse 29 and 30. Even the strongest among you will tire and ultimately will fall. But I, God, give power to the weak. I increase strength to those who are without strength. And I love verse 31, and you've seen it many times. First word is but. Those who wait, that's contrast. Those who know God is at work, Romans 8, 28, always working good. Those who know that, they trust God. They're bound, the literal in Hebrew is they're bound up in him. This is where we get our hope from, that God will carry us through. So then you see verse 31. Those who wait on God. Notice what it says about those who wait. Number one, you renew your strength. This is where the idea of exchange strength comes in. I think I can do it in my own. Randy can do it in his own personal strength, and then I realize I can't. And so, so I want to exchange my weakness for God's strength in me and trust him. That's literally what the Hebrew means. Renew your strength means exchange your strength. It's like grass growing every spring, it comes back. In my case, it's weeds, but it comes back. It's new every year. That's the idea here. Exchange your weakness for God's strength, which is there. Trust it. Lean on it, not to your own understanding. Exchange my weakness for his strength. When the Apostle Paul asked God three times to remove his thorn in the flesh, his physical affliction, whatever it was, and he asked God to remove it three times, God said, no, my grace is sufficient for you. If you keep reading in context, here's what Paul said. Quote, when I am weak, then I am strong. Because when I'm weak, God is still omnipotent. And I need his omnipotent strength in my life to carry me. I have to trust my dad. So number one, they will renew their strength, those who wait on God. Number two, they will mount up with wings like eagles. We will ascend above whatever the fray is. And the picture here, metaphorically, what God is trying to get them to see, and what I really hope you can see today is this. Eagles are majestic probably maybe the most majestic creature just to watch. When eagles are flying and floating, if they become encounter a storm, they rise above the storm and look down on it. They go toward the sun to avoid the storm and look down on it. Please catch that metaphor in the context of everything he's saying in Isaiah 40. You're going to encounter storms but rise above them by waiting on me. I'm going to renew your strength, exchange it, and rise above it, look down. Third point, those who wait on him will run and not be weary. Run and not be weary. The race that we have to run as Christians. Hebrews 12 says this, you've heard it many times. We are surrounded by so, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and sat down at the right hand 
of the throne of God. Apostle Paul in Romans said this in his second Timothy, therefore I run thus, not with uncertainty, thus I fight, not as one who beats the air. I discipline my body and I bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. I fought the good fight, I finished the race, I've kept the faith. And then the last thing there in Isaiah, they shall walk and not faint. Our father, daddy's voice of comfort to us. His promise, I'll save you. His proclamation, I can do this in his privilege. This is where I want to end. And please don't miss this. His privilege for us as his children. When the world around you is falling apart, which in many ways is exactly where we are, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, falling apart. You, as my children, have the privilege of saying to them, there is a God, he's greater than this. He will carry you. If you trust his promise, let him save you. Let him carry you. Let him be your daddy. Because we understand there's something more important than all the things that we're worried about. It's knowing who God is. I want to end with this story, true story. Corrie Ten Boom writes about it in one of her books. She was in Africa conducting meetings, and a man came to the meeting, and his hands were all bandaged up, and she asked him, how did you get your hands get bandaged? And he said, well, my, uh, my neighbor's straw roof was on fire, and I helped him put it out, and that's how my hands were burned. That was really nice of him. So later... Corey says, I heard the whole story. The neighbor hated this guy. And so he set his house on fire to burn the neighbors and ended up catching the man who hated the neighbor, caught his house on fire. And the neighbor who the, the man who hated his neighbor was trying to burn him out. And the guy who was a Christian went over and put out the flames in the neighbor's house who hated him. And that's how he got burnt. By loving his neighbor. Jesus summed up the gospel, the law and the prophets this way. Love God with all your being. Love your neighbor as yourself. In a time like this, there's so many ways we can encounter our neighbors. And I don't mean just those who physically live around you, even though I've talked to a lot of mine this week. Some are real Christians, some who aren't about all that's going on and how I can be there for them and we can be there for each other. But so many people that you may have a chance to encounter and talk to and dialogue with, whether it's by text or email or social media, whatever it might be, you understand forgiveness. And even if someone hates you, you're going to love and forgive them because Christ has loved and forgiven you. Wherever you are right now, just bow your heads with me and let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are God. No doubt the omnipotent creator of the universe, no doubt. But you also, through Christ, are our daddy. We are grateful for that privilege. Thank you for your promise. Thank you for your power and the privilege of being your children. And I pray, Lord, in this difficult, hard, 
time with so many difficult decisions and, and physical issues that are having to be dealt with and, and financial, all that's going on, you would use us as the body of Christ to love and share the forgiveness of Jesus with individuals that we encounter. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Just a couple of reminders. Next Sunday, we'll be here again. Same thing, 1045, worshiping online together. Please continue to pray for us and faithfully, if the Lord is still blessing you, loving you, being there for you, faithfully give so that we can minister in all that the Lord has us to do. I love you. Praying for you. God bless you.